0: Welcome to the Birthing Instincts podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbine, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices,
1: and I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational-style podcast where we talk about everything birth.
0: Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soulfire Soul production. Fire. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. To another edition of birthing instincts podcast this is sort of a special one with again just me as bliss is out on the road and the special treat for us today i'm going to interview with uh, Breach parents alex and gabe and that'll be coming up in just a second but before we get to that i wanted to uh just go over a couple of um news items and some other things that are on my mind i always have things on my mind as you know and even when i'm sleep deprived and post Birth and all that stuff, my mind just keeps <laughs> chugging along. And uh, some of you know, I'm looking for possibly to move to a, a new place or looking at houses. And I have this incredible sort of knack for just picking up language, the use of language, which always sort of blows my mind sometimes how they change words to make things. Um, seem different or better than they really are. It's sort of uh, my pet peeves sometimes. And there are oxymorons out there. I think I might've talked about some of them on a, on a past podcast, but one I found when I was looking at property and it, it was describing the property as a huge quarter acre lot. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's a quarter acre. So how is it huge? Or how is it small? It's a quarter acre. So why does a realtor write that other than sort of to uh, in some ways be deceiving and marketing and, and marketing brings me to the whole thought of what's going on sort of with the, with the coronavirus and, and the vaccine and how they're offering us free donuts and free lottery tickets and free sports event tickets to get vaccinated. And um, again, it's, it's, the poor used car salesman has always been the one that's been uh, vilified as the sleazy person, but I'm sure they're a very nice used car salesmen. But a lot of these things to me sound like the traditional used car salesman. And when it comes to our health and vaccinations, things like that, I think that they should stay out of it. I don't mind a realtor telling me that the quarter acre lot is huge. Um, anyway, just a thought. So on that note, I wanted to say that um, I've been reading a lot lately on uh, the coronavirus vaccine. Before I get into some breach stuff, I wanted to go over a few things that have been on my mind. Um, The life life expectancy uh, in the United States, the average life expectancy of both men and women averaged out is about 77 years old. Uh, Obviously it's higher for women, lower for men, but the average is 77 years old. And the average person who dies from coronavirus um, infection is 78 years old. So these people are actually living longer. Now, this is a, I'm playing with statistics here as well. They're comparing apples to oranges, but it is sort of funny that we're all getting excited about a disease that's killing people older than the average life expectancy in the United States. Um, then my, um, the American College of OBGYN continues to put out a bit of sophistry uh sophistry is a good word and in case you don't have time to look it up it's sort of reasoning that seems plausible on a superficial level but is actually unsound and fallacious used used to deceive and uh, a lot of these places put that put that stuff out and sort of meets with the whole huge quarter acre thing gets back to that as well and so ACOG has a committee opinion on uh, ethical issues with vaccination and I'm reading this for a purpose because I had my first case of uh, somebody I know closely who had a vaccine injury. And so I wanted to just say what ACOG says first. They say um, the goals of vaccination are to preserve the health of individual patients as well as the health of the general public. Okay. Major challenges to increasing vaccine uptake and acceptance include widespread misinformation and disinformation on social media regarding safety. When I hear somebody Using the misinformation, disinformation thing. At this point, anybody who hears those words should say that the person using those words is probably the one spewing misinformation because pretty much everything that they told you in the last couple of years that they said is misinformation is coming around to being proven to be true. So when I see that and I see that coming from my organization, it already has me upset. Um, It also says that one of the other uh, obstacles is a lack of trust in the medical system. No shit, all right? Why would we be trusting the medical system, which has been so wrong so often uh, and so coercive? They don't seem to understand that. I think they live in a bubble. There's a pundit that I see sometimes on CNN. Her name is Dr. Liana Wen, I think. She's a scary personality. She talks about how we need to make life more difficult for the unvaccinated and how that when state we should prevent states from opening up until we can use that as a bargaining chip on their freedom. Because if we give people back their freedoms before we get them vaccinated, how are we going to get them vaccinated? If you don't believe me, that's what I'm saying. You can, you can uh, do a Google or YouTube search on Dr. Leanna Wen on CNN. I've seen a couple of these clips, and they're quite frightening to me. And when I hear people listed as Dr. So-and-so saying these things, you know, why would I trust the medical system? The ACOG doesn't seem to understand that that's a a reasonable place to be. Those of us also, they say uh, one of the other obstacles is prioritization of personal freedoms over collective health. Yeah, okay. Freedom is not something that is supposed to be given to us by our government. Freedom is something that we are given to by God. It's innate. And somehow we've got to the point where, as with Dr. Wen, she believes that freedom is something that the government gives you only if you're a good little person. So, uh, yes, collective health matters and people when they're sick should wear a mask or don't go out. But the idea of accepting a vaccine, which I'll talk about in just a second, which has a track record that's not so good and sacrificing in your own health for what may or may not be a benefit for the community is certainly it should be an individual decision, at least still in this country. Uh, ACOG goes on to say, obstetrician gynecologists are in a unique position to help address these barriers by educating and counseling patients throughout their lifespan. OBGYN should counsel their patients about vaccination in an evidence-based manner that allows patients to make an informed decision. Totally agree with that. I don't think they think evidence-based means what they think it means. It's sort of like for those of you who saw Princess Bride and the guy kept saying inconceivable. Benzini kept saying inconceivable. And finally, I think uh, Inigo Montoya says something to the fact that I don't think that word means what you think it means. Um, because I don't think that uh, they believe that evidence-based and informed consent is what we think it should mean. Given the public health benefit of vaccines as well as their potential to safeguard an individual patient's health, Obstetrician-gynecologists should recommend routine vaccination in accordance with the current guidelines provided by the CDC. Nothing to say about that. You know how I stand. If a patient continues to be uncertain about vaccination after counseling, OBGYN should inquire about the reasons for this hesitation to help address patient-specific questions and concerns. Perfectly reasonable. If the patient declines this informed refusal of the recommendation for vaccination, this should be respected. That's true. However... Then they go on to say, during subsequent office visits, OBGYN should address ongoing questions and concerns and re-offer vaccination again if the patient seems amenable. In other words, you're supposed to keep pounding at it and pounding at it, even though the person has told you that this is not a vaccine they're going to choose. Whether it's HPV vaccine or whether it's Tdap and flu shot in pregnancy or whether it's the coronavirus uh, vaccine, Um, we should keep hammering at patients, and I'm not sure that that is, that I feel the same ethical obligation to do such a thing. And then lastly, to avoid their own personal contribution to the spread of disease, obstetrician gynecologists have an ethical obligation to be vaccinated according to the current guidelines of the CDC and ACOG. So apparently that any of those healthcare workers that choose not to be vaccinated are are acting unethically. This to me is... Incredible. Since last report that I saw, less than forty percent of healthcare workers, at least frontline healthcare workers, have been vaccinated. So again, they're ma- they're making a statement that says that we are unethical for executing our freedoms to make an informed decision about what's best for us personally. And they uh, so you know we just disagree. And I you know ACOG does some really good things, but some but on this and they're and they're going full woke and their support of critical race theory and uh, getting rid of meritocracy and all these things that they're, they're doing. It, you know, it's, uh, it, it's baffling to me how, how much groupthink has entered into this and that I can't believe that if 50% or more of doctors haven't gotten vaccinated, that all of ACOG believes that this is the right thing that they should be advocating for. Somehow there's a silent majority out there that is too afraid to speak up, which is not me, as you know. So um, there's this thing I saw also on the safety of vaccines. And there's a number, there's a, a statistic in medicine called the number needed to treat. And it's the number needed that you need to do an intervention on to save one or have prevent one bad outcome. Like with breach delivery, somewhere around 600 C-sections to prevent one neonatal death, that sort of thing. So this is about the, the uh, COVID vaccine. And this there was a study that came out of... Um, Oh boy, I can't tell where it came out of. Uh, but we'll put it. We'll put it in the show notes. It says the number needed to treat with the vaccination is between 200 to 700 to prevent one case of COVID-19 um, for the mRNA vaccine marketed by Pfizer. So in other words, you have to give say 500 shots to prevent one person catching COVID. While the number needed to treat to prevent one death is between 9,000 and 50,000. With about 16,000, they say, as a point estimate. So you have to give 16,000 shots to prevent one death. Okay. You know, if that's the only fact that you have, and you could say, well, you know, what's one death, one life worth? And some people would say it's not worth giving me being forced to take a vaccine. Other people would say, well, if the vaccine is safe, then it seems like it's reasonable to take it. And if 16,000 people have to take it to save one person, that's fine. But the, however, the, this is, this is the, the twist here. The number of cases experiencing adverse reactions have been reported to be 700 per 100,000 vaccinations. Or I guess that would be 70%, 7 per 1,000. So just under 1%. Currently, we see 16 serious side effects per 100,000 vaccinations. And the number of fatal side effects is 4.11 per 100,000 vaccinations. So for three deaths prevented by vaccination, we have to accept two deaths inflicted by vaccination. Conclusion, this lack of clear benefit should cause governments to rethink their vaccination policy. So here's another side of the same argument published in a journal and completely ignored and would be labeled misinformation by those people that want all of us to get vaccinated. So everybody should be making up their own mind in a free country. And that's what I'm going to continue to advocate for. You know, I think I've mentioned before, the stupidity and the anti-science and maybe even unethicalness of asking people who've recovered from COVID who have antibody titers to get vaccinated in order to fly or keep their job. Or in my case, in California, to go to a California-funded university. Um, A friend of mine whose daughter's name is Jasmine, wrote me this letter. She said, hello, Stuart. My daughter Jasmine got the first Moderna vaccine, although she had had COVID and still had antibodies because UC Santa Barbara said she needed it to move into campus housing. Within hours uh, after the vaccine, she had a fever of 101.7, started vomiting nonstop, had a headache and a strange feeling in her throat. The next day, still sick, she went to the urgent care that sent her to the ER she got four bags of IV fluids, multiple doses of Zofran, medication for her throat swelling, and the paper says vaccine reaction, but they told her to still go ahead and get the second dose in two weeks. I don't understand physicians. Where did they go to school? What did they, what did they learn? What did they learn about immune reactions? What do they learn about anaphylactic reactions? Um, how do you tell someone who just recovered from apparently a significant sort of mild, uh, not mild, but a significant anaphylactic reaction or just some sort of vaccine reaction to go back and get the second dose in two weeks when she didn't need the first dose. So she says she needs a note for uh, UC Santa Barbara saying she cannot get the second vaccine. So she asked me to write the note and I did. And it's on a form from the University of California Medical Exemption Request Form. It's actually the first sort of exemption I've, letter I've ever written because I've, generally these things are done for, for kids to school and I don't do those sorts of things, but this one hit home to me. So I put I, Stewart and I said that uh, she has a medical contraindication to SARS-CoV-2. They asked required a description of the contraindication. So I wrote down shortly after her first dose of the Moderna mRNA vaccine on June 28th, she developed a severe reaction, fever, nausea, vomiting, dehydration, throat swelling, and was seen in the emergency room, treated and diagnosed with a vaccine reaction. And then they ask, is the, the contraindication permanent or temporary? Well, how am we supposed to know that? But obviously I checked the permanent box because I would never give a woman who's already had a reaction, uh, not even a woman, a, per, a person, it could be a man too. You know, <laughs> you're gonna attempt fate a second time, but you're gonna stand around with a, with a shot of adrenaline while you to see if she reacts to it, um, to, to, vaccinate her against something she's already immune to. I I think that this is coming across as pure stupidity. I hope it's coming across as pure stupidity. Anyway, at the bottom of the letter, I I wrote in my own handwriting in a note, I wrote, as a practicing physician for 35 years, I have never seen a mandate for people recovering with natural immunity being coerced into receiving a vaccine. Your policy likely contributed to the danger to this, to Jasmine, and is both unscientific and unethical. And, you know, I don't know that anything will come of it. My guess is that nothing will come of it, but um, at least it's out there now in the ether. There's free to share this story to family members and friends who are thinking about getting vaccinated after they've had and recovered from COVID, especially to do it for a non-medical reason, which is another word for coercion, um, because in order to get their acting job or to keep their job or to or to travel to a country where they have to go, or to visit family, or to go to the university or public schools. Um, but if they have to get it, make sure that they do it where they can get free donuts, because then it's probably going to be worthwhile to do it. So I wanted to um, just talk about a little bit about breach delivery because it's like raining breaches lately, and we have a story from Alex and uh, Gabe coming up. So uh, I've had four or maybe even five breaches in the last two months, all prime Ips, all successful home breaches. So I feel really good about the fact that these women all avoided uh, cesarean sections and their families are all set for a different course for the rest of their lives. So it, um, I just want to reiterate that properly selected term vaginal breech birth is a reasonable and evidence-supported option. And even for people who don't know how to do breech birth, it would be ethical for them to say that... I don't know how to do breech birth, but there are people in the community that do. So why don't you go have a consult with them rather than saying things like breech birth is dangerous and heads will get stuck and and only cowboys do it and that sort of thing, because that is completely unethical. And that would be, I would label that as misinformation. Anyway, here's a letter from Tahira. She writes, greeting Dr. Stu. I'm full spectrum doula in LA who was recommended to your podcast by a midwife friend a few weeks ago uh, for advice on my first twin delivery in August. I really enjoyed hearing all of your experiences and learning from you and your guests. Thank you, Bliss, by the way. Anyways, I want to reach out on behalf of another postpartum client who is having her cerclage removed next week. So I guess this is her second pregnancy, um, or she more she's a postpartum doula and the woman hasn't had her baby yet. Um, she has a breech baby and the provider is unwilling to offer her a vaginal delivery. She's had several miscarriages in the past. A short cervix funneling has been modified bed rest since her secolage was placed at 22 weeks. As a cerclage for those of you who don't know, is a stitch, like a purse string that's put in the cervix for women that have true incompetent cervix. Um, the indications for this are, are limited, but it can be life-saving, baby-saving. Since you are an expert in breech delivery, I would like to know if you have any advice or resources for getting her baby to turn. Yes, I do, and we talked about that. I know this is a long shot since you are very busy, but I'm trying all the resources I can to help her get the best care and recovery possible. Uh, any websites, podcast episodes, blog posts, uh, would be appreciated. Uh, in the meantime, I will keep listening uh, to the podcast and see what gems I might pick up along the way. Thank you so much to Okay. So I wrote back to her and I said, um, dear Tahira, you have mentioned all the non-invasive options, which is, which have a mediocre success re- record for Frank breach babies and primips." but better than the only option usually offered, which is scheduled cesarean. Would she consider a vaginal breech birth? Is she local here in LA? When is she due? What sort of birth plan does she desire? There is Dr. Brock at Cedars, which is a pretty much it for vaginal breech birth in the hospital setting currently. Would she be open to a, a candidate for external version? Too many unanswered questions for me to give options, but if she's local, she could come in for a consult. You can respond here if sharing a bit more info would be helpful. Sincerely, Dr. Fishbine. And she writes back, this is why I'm reading this. Okay, thank you so much for responding. She would refer, she would prefer a vaginal breech birth, but her doctor said only, quote, cowboys, unquote, do that. So I don't think it's likely. She is birthing with Dr. Khalil Tabish at St. John's in Santa Monica. And she has a birth plan that I think he has briefly glanced at, but I believe is too, it is too late to change providers and she has not expressed any interest in doing so. She lives in Culver City and we'd be willing to come in for a consult if possible, but she is having her cerclage removed on July 3rd, when the jaclage is removed on Thursday, the doctor will see if she's a candidate for external version, which she is open to, which I can pretty much tell you he will tell her no. The baby is currently in a footling breech presentation. She's 35 weeks. By footling breech, I'm presuming she means a complete breech with the feet presenting. And maybe she was told it's footling, but that is often a mis- misinterpretation or a purposeful misleading by the physician who either knows better and is saying it or doesn't know anything because it's very rare for a term fetus to have a to be with its legs extended there just isn't usually room for that she's 35 and a half weeks the baby is measuring week over in weight at each checkup I, i i think i respond to that statement too so i write back oh geez tabish is such a strange and arrogant man and i'm being kind And I'm happy to speak this out loud. I mean, people wanna know stories about why I say that, I can tell you personally. Vaginal breech birth is a variation of normal and properly selected moms are supported by the American College of OBGYN, and he knows that. And then quote, a week over in weight, unquote, is within normal limits of a scan, and he knows that too. I don't think he's a big fan of shared decision-making. I wonder if he ever had listened to himself speak, I doubt it would matter. It is never too late to change practitioners. It can be hard to do and scary with the way he counsels people. And so most just acquiesce. If your client wants to come in for a consult, she can make an appointment. Um, I will not skew my information, but can give her another take on the topic of breach and hopefully confidence in whatever decision she chooses. And that's what I do a lot here in Los Angeles, either through in-person consultations or through Zoom meetings. So I would like... um, people to spread the word that breach delivery before you make a decision to have a scheduled elective cesarean section, because you've been told that that's the only safe way to deliver your baby is to at least get more information. And then if you have the information and you choose to do it, that's perfectly fine. Or if you're one of those people that just, you know, you just don't want conflict and don't want to, don't want to uh, know the other information you sort of live by the ostrich theory of life. That's fine too but I want to be sure that everyone knows that there are other options. And so I hope that uh, this coming up story with Alex and Gabe will shed a little light on it. So without further ado, we'll go right to that interview and then I'll be back after to wrap things up tonight. I'm honored to have my clients and who've become my friends, Alex and Gabriel Basso. Welcome to the breathing instincts podcast, you guys.
2: Hello. Thank Thank you. you.
0: (laughs) I want to start, I want to go back in time. And because I want to get to your story about your, uh, your birth, I don't want to give it away right away, so we'll just let people pay attention here. But I mean, start with, uh, uh, in the beginning, sort of, what, what is your background? How did you guys meet? Where are you from? That sort of thing.
3: Uh, we met down in San Diego. I'm from
0: Missouri.
1: I'm from all over, but mostly San Diego.
0: <laughs> and what were you doing in San Diego, Gabe? Uh, just meeting her. <laughs>
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think he drove three hours from North Hollywood to meet me the first time. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
3: To cook her dinner for a first date. And then,
1: uh, and then we got married like six months later.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wait. So did you guys just meet randomly? Was it a fix up? How did that work? Sort of met through an app.
1: We met on hinge.
0: (laughs) Ah,
3: okay. Yeah. I took it. I, we both, I don't think we're taking it very seriously. Mm. And, uh, just the other one's sense of humor about it all made it happen.
0: Well, you know what? That's fantastic. You know, it's a nice nice commercial for the app. I'll just flip yeah,
3: that part out. Maybe, we, maybe out we can get
0: there to be sponsors. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah sponsorship. so you knew like you knew first date, first conversation, because six months isn't a long time to get to wait to get married.
3: Yeah, I think we just um we just really like connected and she liked the dinner I cooked.
1: (laughs) Yes, food is my love language. And also I think we were both both sort of just over people and being messed with. And I think that we saw that in each other. (laughs) So yeah
0: We we have a lot we have a lot of foodies that are involved in this and and you know what I think you have a lot in common. I think there's some you know it, it's, it was more than just probably physical because I know you both and I know that you yeah. shared, you shared deeply some values.
3: Yeah. It, I think it was a majority uh, values and um, kind of being done with how much, like bonding over trauma almost in the past, I think was big. And uh, I don't know, we just sort of were both, I don't want to like drowning victims that like cling on to each other. And then it's not even healthy in the beginning, but it just, they sort of keep each other alive. (laughs) And then it turned into something. It's healthy now.
0: (laughs) Did you guys meet before or after the whole uh, lockdown stuff started? Before,
1: before I think like a year before.
0: Yeah. So do you think that, I mean, this is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because it's my show. (laughs) Um, Do you think that things would have been the same for you two if you had met after lockdown?
3: Probably not. The people, her influences were not great, (laughs) not not the same. I don't know. I think we met at a time where I was being very vocal about my values and I wouldn't have been as vocal now. And I don't think she would have thought been as open to uh, new ideas
0: (laughs) as she. Yeah. I mean, people are very muted right now. They're very afraid to speak. They don't know how they're going to be greeted by it. And they don't know publicly. So we won't even go into that area because we don't really want to do. That's not why we're here today. But I yeah. just I am curious because I think that the course of history, even small ripples, was changed dramatically when we when everything changed back in what March of uh 2020, I guess it was, right? Yeah, March of 2020. Yeah. What a fear. As as part of your uh like dating negotiation, did you talk about having kids? Yeah, I
1: mean in passing sort of I think I told him give me babies (laughs) Uh,
3: but (laughs) and I always wanted like a big family so it just
0: yeah in that instance we agreed (laughs) you guys come you guys come we were trying I'm sorry Alex say that again
1: we knew when we got pregnant that we were trying to get
0: so you weren't going to wait you weren't going to wait you just you knew it was time to start
3: yeah and we'd rather have them younger when we have energy to like put up with it all you know, yeah. and have your life isn't really on a direct course so you can make adjustments as opposed to feeling like, oh, now I have this thing pulling me away from this thing I want to do. We didn't really have a lot we wanted to do. We just knew we wanted a family. Well, that's,
0: yeah. I, it is a good plan because uh, it's hard. And then and when you're 40 and having children, it's different than when you're in your early 20s. So, so smart, very smart. There's a lot of wisdom out there that doesn't get uh, discussed as much, but that's very smart. So you guys wanted kids right away. Um, how long did it take <laughs> before well, you got pregnant? Before you got pregnant the first time,
1: I think it was four months four from months. when we
0: started trying.
3: And then it was the first try. Now she's pregnant again. So, <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, so you're getting ahead of the game here. But I, I know that Alex is pregnant again for the second time, and both of them were the first first times.
3: No, the first one it took four months. And Uh, this one was the first, first time.
0: All right. Well, let's, let's put the, uh, not put the cart before the horse here. Let's go, let's go (laughs) back. So when you got pregnant with, uh, I'll say her name with, with Penelope, um, your first baby, what were you thinking? Um, as far as a birth vision for yourself, uh, did you always plan to do, uh, out of hospital birth? Was that something that was innate in your DNA? Was it something that you dreamed about or was it something that just you came across later on?
1: So I actually didn't really have much of an intuition about it. I think when we first started planning, we were in Michigan. So I didn't really know that midwives existed up there. So we took the hospital route for I think the first trimester. And then about When did we move? We moved. We moved to California. I want to say in my second trimester, and that's when we started looking into birth birthing centers. So Uh, our doula Lindsay actually was the one who convinced us to look into midwives in the area that we were planning on birthing in.
3: And it started to get. I remember uh, in the early stages of the pregnancy, COVID started to sort of like the fear and the scrambling started taking place so I think we were both a little like you know there were so many questions about what was going to happen and what was going on and as it got further in the pandemic and lockdowns we realized that a hospital wasn't really a place we wanted to be and how many precautions and how many people and not necessarily out of fear of contracting the virus but like just how how quickly they would have taken the kid, how much pressure they were putting on you, how uncomfortable it all was. Uh, so we just naturally looked to, you know, alternative places like a birthing center or a midwife or at home.
1: And it was also really already super clinical and impersonal whenever we would go for our prenatal visits at yeah. the hospital. So I really didn't like that. It felt rude.
0: <laughs> so, so Lindsay was the one that sort of tipped the scales and then also, the, that you're saying that also the lockdown issues and the and the policies that hospitals were putting in place making it more draconian was well we just
3: we just didn't know like we didn't know what what they were going to do because it seemed like week to week things were either more intense and the pendulum would continue to swing in the you know in the direction of you can't even touch your kid once it's born and you, we have to test you and the we have to PCR test you or whatever and that's not 100 percent accurate all the time so it was like. You know, are are we going to ha- potentially not get to meet our kid? We can't go skin to skin. We can't do it. like there are all these things.
0: Sure. Yeah, you know, and, were, yeah they didn't, and they didn't know what they were doing. They had no uh, basis on which to make these decisions. So they erred on the side of stupidity, as, as I often say. By you know, because it got to the point where they were not even allowing fathers in the in the delivery room. Sometimes they were certainly not allowing you at prenatal visits. They were not allowing doulas. So Lindsay wouldn't have been with you either you would have been later yeah. for the first time all by yourself and they thought that this was wise so again people who follow me know all about how I think about that but yeah so this all came this all came into influence and and so you chose to have a birth center so can I just ask maybe why a birth center as opposed to a home birth or was it just logistics or was there because of Lindsay or what we didn't have a home <laughs> <We did.
3: laughs>
1: We were
0: staying
1: staying with one of Gabe's friends who was out of town at the time. He was nice enough to let us stay at his home. So fortunately, we got to spend the whole third trimester there because we were living way up north at the time that...
3: Yeah, like five, six hours north of San Francisco. So we found the team down here that we liked, and then my friend was gracious enough to let us stay at his place. And so it all just sort of worked out. Um, and then because Penelope was breached, uh, Lindsay brought your name up and that's how we contacted you.
0: Now now you're getting, you're getting ahead of the story. Now you just, you let the cat out of the bag, but I I
3: was
0: going (laughs) to, I was going to build up to that part, but that's okay. So I think you guys were staying sort of in the Hollywood Hills someplace. How did you decide on the thousand Oaks birth center on Robin's birth center? Just curious how, how you picked that one. How did you just bond with Robin? What's the story?
1: I think that she was the first midwife that we met with. She just seemed really nice. And I liked the layout of the birth center and how clean everything looked. And she had this really cool antique medicine cabinet that I, that I wanted. And I don't know.
0: It was just sort of... Well, that's as good a that's as good a reason as any. I mean, if, if, if you bond with somebody and, and they're, you know, they're all competent. I mean, all the midwives I work with are competent. So the fact that you hit it off with her right away, was great. And she does have the coolest stuff at her birth center because she's into this um, vintage stuff, I think.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. So, and it's a lovely birth center. It's in Thousand Oaks called push. We'll give it a push. So, so then you were going along with your prenatal care and at what, at some point you found out that oops, uh, Penelope was uh doing her own thing and about how far pregnant were you when you figured that out?
1: I think we we sort of got a heads up at like 34 weeks and Dr. Holyock I think it was, um, who works with Robin right. had told us that we might want to consider an ECV if she didn't turn within the next two weeks or something.
3: And we were doing all this stuff. Uh, we were doing inversions and
1: acupuncture.
3: floating and acupuncture and all the stuff, trying to, you know,
0: naturally flip stuff. her around. Yeah. We yeah. It's like, it's like when, when somebody has a breech baby, they're automatically sort of given this checklist of all these things that they're supposed yeah. to do. By the time I usually meet them, they've all, they've tried all those things for weeks, but anyway, so clearly none of that stuff worked. You did go to the chiropractic. You did do acupuncture with Moxa.
1: Yeah,
0: we did that. Yeah. yeah, the spinning baby stuff. Everybody does that. And you know, problem is, is whenever these stories get publicized on on podcasts like mine or Dr. Berlin's podcast, um, obviously all these things fail because otherwise you wouldn't be on the podcast. <laughs> because
2: yeah.
0: uh, if the baby turned, that would be the end of your story. Your story would be boring. So yeah. clearly, uh, Penny did not. Penelope did not want to turn. So she stayed breached. So then how did I come into the picture?
1: Sort of like I was saying, Dr. Polyakin wanted us to go see some other doctor for an ECV. And they we went in and got the ultrasound, got to look at her spine and all of the specifics of everything. The doctor came into the room and started telling us that I couldn't have anything to eat or drink for like 11 hours before.
3: Yeah, they scheduled he was telling us about this, the schedule for the ECB. Yeah. And he was like, okay, so before you come in, it might be Thursday. So before you come in, don't eat, don't yeah. drink. And here, like I know nothing about the birthing stuff. And I know that she has to, the one thing I do know is fluid intake is important for yes. the <laughs> amniotic fluid, like she has to drink water. And I'm like, Oh, but wouldn't that help? If there's more water, if she's more hydrated, wouldn't help her you know, to flip if you're moving her, you know, forcefully. And so then we realized they were prepping her. Did you you say that to, did you
0: say that to the guy?
3: Not really. I I was just sort of like, did we?
1: I think we asked and he was sort of like, well, it's just in case we have to take you for an emergency C-section.
3: Okay. So yeah, we just realized that they were prepping her for surgery and that they were going to put all the stress on the baby. And then the baby would react, obviously, and then-
1: It's like you say, teaching us how to be a good patient, not a good further. However, you say it more eloquently than I just did.
0: But. I like that, that's pretty good. No, I mean, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is the medical model goes to the worst case scenario all the time. And are there cases of people who have versions who, who end up with a, a, a baby has a D cell and they have to do an emergency or the placenta partially separates and they have to do an emergency? Yeah, that's happened. But it's so it's so extremely rare that to, to frighten all women who are going to have a version into that potential scenario is very likely to make the version unsuccessful,
3: mm-hmm. simply
0: because it's very hard to relax when you're in, you know you're fearful. It's
3: they're funny setting, to me setting you up to
0: fail. Sorry, go ahead, Gabe.
3: No, no, no. I'm just as you're saying this. It's funny to me that you know in certain areas like this. They take they they basically prep you for the worst case scenario. And then for in other avenues like the vaccine, the worst case scenario is don't even worry about it. You know what I'm saying? It's like they they pick and choose the worst case scenario to acknowledge. And that's just interesting to me. It's like have some at least have some consistency in your thinking and being <laughs> like, okay, the worst case scenario is going to happen all the time. So let's prep you for surgery in a C-section and also let's be very careful about what we put in your body because you know this this happened to this guy and we have to be careful it's like the complete opposite
0: yeah well there is no consistency and there there's so many factors that are involved in that and why they do certain things that way but nonetheless nonetheless so what happened did you undergo a, a version or did you decide not to do it
1: we were in the car on the way <laughs> back from that appointment i think i started crying and i was like oh my gosh we're gonna have this baby like In three days, we're not even ready. I don't have all this stuff together. I was only, what, like 35, 36 weeks. Yeah. So then that's when Lindsay mentioned you, and we reached out to you, and Chrissy was able to get us in, I think, that week, on the day that we were supposed to have the ECB with this other doctor. And you tried, I think, for like a minute, and it just wasn't happening, so you didn't force it. You didn't. Make was, it was weird, any harder <laughs> yeah, yeah it w- I was still really nervous, but I think that you did a much better job of not scaring us than the, the other guy did.
0: <laughs> well, I'll take that as a, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been doing them for a long time, and and again, they're 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 often difficult in first-time moms who are physically fit. when babies are Frank Breech, and Penelope was Frank, right? That's the feet up by the head. Yeah. And uh, you didn't have a ton of fluid. And uh, so it just didn't go. And I don't use me- a lot of medication. We tip you upside down a little bit. We try to get you to relax and we just go. And my experience with this after doing this for a really long time is they either go pretty straightforwardly or they don't, or they're not going to go. And to force it beyond a certain point, sometimes they're even using epidurals now during to do a version. And to me, I know that there are papers that say there's higher success rates, but to me, that m- removes all feedback from the mother, and it just doesn't make sense to me that you can push, that you have to push that hard that she needs an anesthetic. Maybe you shouldn't be pushing that hard. The reason yeah. that doctors push that hard and do that in, in the medical model is because the only choice you have, if it doesn't work, is a cesarean section. But that's not the case, and as you guys found out. So what happened? How, how did you feel, by the way, after it didn't work? Did we already have, a? did we already had talked about vaginal options or did we, did we try that first and then sit down and talk about them? I can't remember.
3: I think we, you sat us down first on the couch. I I think we met with you before the ECV. You gave us all the paperwork and you talked to us about uh, the difference in breech births Mm -hmm. and, you know, the success rates and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's true because I generally don't, I don't want to do a version on someone I've just met. I want them to go home and have time to think about all the options before that. Otherwise it feels like they're getting funneled into something and, and without time to think about it. And you know, you were early enough, there was no urgency to do it. Right. Yeah.
3: The meeting was very, the first meeting with you was very informative. And then we talked to Robin about it. We talked to Lindsay about it. And I just like to have information and, you know, my whole thing was trying to keep her comfortable and calm and wherever she Wanted to go or uh, to be supportive, but also be like, okay, this is—we're not, you know, we're not going to have, we're not going to go in essentially prep for surgery. Don't worry about it. We're not going to do that. And I was trying to relax everything, and then to have you come in, actually know what you're talking about, and also put her at ease, help because yeah. I could only do yes. so much, <laughs> having not known anything about this whole process. So, yeah,
2: like,
3: have you ever a baby?
0: baby?
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: Well, you you know what you you probably know about as much as most obstetricians know at this point, but
3: um, <laughs> that's why I was in San Diego when we met. I was, <laughs> I was <deluding. laughs>
0: so so at this point. So now we know the baby's not going to turn, and you're choosing to you you made the decision obviously to go and have a vaginal breech birth with me. How did you did you did we talk about the option of going to a vaginal breech birth at the hospital, but I guess yeah. you didn't want to do that for many, for all the reasons you already mentioned yeah. about the hospital. So it really was your only option at that point. Yeah. When you told people or did you not tell people that you were planning a out-of-hospital breach birth, how did that go? We didn't, did we tell
3: anyone?
1: Yeah, we told my family.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. We had mentioned it
3: to a few people and there's just so much. It's funny to me that like not knowing anything about the process, I was more open to it than being a part of it than other people also not knowing anything about the process. And for me, I always try to think about things like 2000, 3000 years ago, what the hell did they do? Uh, You know, just make it really simple. And, uh, before all the other shit or stuff, like how did they all figure it out? And they had the baby or they didn't. And it was like, there were, there weren't ultrasounds There weren't granted. There were probably, Cases of, uh, you know, that definitely cases have been not going well. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's no, like, you
0: don't have to go back 3000 years. Gabe. You can go back 50 years.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. It's like what there wasn't really a alternative. It was just have the baby, like stop freaking out and have the baby. And, and for me, I don't know, the less people I, I didn't want a bunch of people around. And this was my, you know, what I wanted. Uh, so she had what she wanted, but I—the less people around, I was happiest because it's the less people you have to worry about, the less people that have an opinion about what's going on. Uh, let her be comfortable and focused on what's going on. Let me deal with the doula and you and all that stuff, and listen to you guys and just try to learn as much as I can. But I don't get what people.
1: But to answer your question, <laughs> um, <laughs> I,
3: I can't stand people. <laughs> to
1: answer your question, I told my family, and they sort of. They were really against it, and they thought that I was going to need an ambulance to the hospital, and I was going to end up having a C-section, and basically just uninformed. They were uninformed. Just fear. Yeah. Just
3: putting a bunch of fear on Alex for no reason.
1: Well, that's how the pregnancy started, though, when I told my family. So yeah. I wasn't really surprised. <laughs>
0: But even yeah, even- that, that's the norm, though, guys, that, that's what we're trying to um, we're trying to change. We're trying to change the whole system. And you guys are helping us right now by putting your story out there. So um, but that that's why I'm I, I'm talking to you is because this kind of thing and what you're experiencing is the norm where, where you have lots of naysayers in there. And it's they um, it's there's I don't know if it's a combination of ignorance and narcissism and, and love and all mixed in together, and people don't know when to keep their mouths shut and respect the fact that my daughter has grown up, my son has grown up, it's their decision to make, right? Yeah. And, and, not, and to my job is to support them in whatever decision they make and not to project onto them how I would feel because it's, you know, because this is how you're making me feel. Well, it isn't about you. And it, it's very difficult yeah. for people to get, it's a dynamic that that runs deep in lots and lots of families. So,
3: yeah, I've noticed uh, not following in the footsteps, especially for women not following in the footsteps of like the stepmother or the mother mm-hmm. results. It, it, they think they take it as like a judgment of their
2: yeah
3: birthing process as opposed to just like, Oh, cool. This is your decision. It's, it, it's actually a judgment. It's not even saying this is what I'm doing and what you did worked. It's like what you did was wrong.
2: Yeah.
3: And they take it like this personal way and, and then try to deride and make sure her process is as uncomfortable as possible because it's not going to work if you don't do it the way I did. And, and it, all that stuff
0: just. Yeah. You know, and you know, I mean, it, it, there might be some hidden and there might be some caring, but also, it, it could, it could, a lot of it could be that, that they had, they are not happy with their own experience and they, and, and, and yet they want to project onto you to have the same experience and misery yeah.
2: loves company.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So anyway, so now, um, you're how many weeks pregnant now when you start to have contractions? Cause we've got a plan and the plan is to give birth at the birth center with a breech baby and uh so how many weeks were you and how did labor start
1: well i was 41 weeks on the dot actually and i was
0: so i let you go to 41 weeks i allowed that wow yeah
1: you allowed that and because... <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's a joke for people listening i hope that i hope oh. they that right
1: oh <laughs> haha <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> you're so serious <laughs>
1: I'm tired, but yeah, I'm always late. tired.
0: People should know it's late. These guys are staying up for me. So thank you.
1: Anyway, yes, you allowed that because <laughs> I was healthy and I didn't have any problems with the pregnancy and everything was great. Penelope was great, just in the wrong position Not <laughs> well, necessarily by, by medical, like hospital <laughs> terms. Yes. But yeah, it was 41 weeks. We had... Just laid down for bed. I think it was probably two in the morning and I felt my my water break. Oh, here we go. And I was super excited. And Gabe went to sleep <laughs> and I couldn't sleep. I tried. I was too excited. I was also trying to do a hypno birth, but um I think that I wanted to be really present for everything since it was. A sort of not really last minute change to everything, but I wasn't able to get into hypnosis. too, But that's okay. I'm gonna try again this time. I think. But anyway.
0: So you so you were you were you broke your bag of waters. You weren't really contracting that much yet.
1: Yeah, I'd say okay. So about maybe an hour and a half, two hours later, they started to get really intense, um, pre- and pretty close together, and we called Lindsay.
3: Did you have back labor too in the beginning?
1: Yeah, I think it wasn't as intense as later on, but um, she must've just been in there really weird and pressing down. So I felt really pushy really early. And so this is probably about, we'll say five hours in out of a 14 hour labor. And I felt Lindsay thought that I was in transition because of how close everything was and how intense it was. And I felt like I needed to push, but I didn't. And so we went to the birth center and I think both you and Robin had just had a birth right before coming to, to us. So that was really cool of you guys to,
0: but we weren't, it wasn't at the birth center. Um, no, yeah. It was no. someplace else, right?
1: Yeah, but both of you guys had just come from another birth, which I thought was really cool that you were able to perform so well for me. But I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else. What else do we talk? about? I, don't know no, I,
0: can... I mean, so you okay? Well, I'll, I'll direct you. That's fine. Okay. I, I I'll, I'll ask some questions then. No, I just wanted you to give a narration. So you came in. You were they were pretty intense. You were feeling a lot of pressure. Um, did you, did, did Robin examine you? Did we, did we find out how far dilated you were or did we not do really any exams until you really still started feeling like pushing?
1: Um, when we got there, we didn't do any exams.
0: She, Robin
1: examined you,
0: Did she? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> See, and I this, rem- is this is the amnesia of, of, of labor because. I yeah. remember it too,
3: because I was so, she was super you know, going through it and a lot of pain. And I was, I was freaking out a little bit, but when we get there, I was like, Oh man, this is quick. Like Alex is moving along.
1: (laughs) Penelope's going to be here any minute. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Lindsay and I were talking about, Oh, she's probably five or six centimeters. Just, you know, what
1: was I like three?
3: You were two. (laughs) And Robin told me she was like, she took me in the corner and she's like, okay, so she's two centimeters. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because I, I had asked, and Alex had asked that uh, you don't tell the mother what she's at to make you know to keep yeah. her from getting discouraged and whatever. So I, when I heard that, I was like, "Oh man, this is two centimeters. <laughs> and then it was, uh, it just kept getting more and more progressively more intense, obviously. And I think she stalled out around she like five or six with and then you checked her you examined her and this was the last time you examined her too and she was at six she was in and out of the tub you remember that right
1: i don't remember getting out of the tub so time was really weird for me at this moment and i can remember pictures of like what i was looking at or what i was smelling but i don't really remember a specific timeline Mm -hmm. looking back on it every you could have told me that it was four hours. And I would have believed you if it had been only 30 minutes. <laughs> Time was just so weird.
3: That's a tactic too. I used was like, just, you know, just another minute, another five minutes. And then it'd be like 30
0: minutes. And she'd be like, yes, it
3: has it been five minutes. yet? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, you have, a, you have a reason not to remember too much about your labor, but I have no excuse because, but other than just, just getting older. <laughs> um, because yeah, I I don't remember. I remember you being in the tub. I don't remember when you got out of the tub either. She but was eventually, eventually, you got on the bed, and you. I mean, we started pushing. I think you. We. I don't think we did coach pushing initially. Right? You just pushed on your own. Or did we do coach pushing from the beginning?
1: I think, if I remember correctly, I think you said that I was a little bit swollen on one part of mm-hmm. my cervix, and so. I think you just helped that move out of the way. I did. And then, um, I were don't you
0: got, think we on like all that. fours at this time, or you were on your back, or do you remember?
1: I don't remember. I think that I tried to stay on our all fours for a bit.
0: I think she was sort of like seated up. You guys had
3: pillows behind her, and she was just sort of like sitting on the edge of the bed. But she was at six centimeters and swollen. And then you took me aside, and we were talking about potentially a hospital, uh, an ambulance, because she had like stalled out for the past four, and she was in a lot of pain, and had really intense back labor, and it had stalled out, and you you were gritting a lot, um, and the horse lips thing, it blew my mind that the cervix and the jaw are connected so the horse lips are like what relax horse
1: lips really moved the dilating along
3: (laughs) well so once you stalled out and he um dr Stu took me aside and robin took me aside it was sort of freaky because then it was the hospital you know sort of path if she didn't if you didn't progress and then i went in and we just all sort of you know talked to you relaxing trying to relax you
1: yeah, Alyssa and, and Lindsay were really great yeah. during this time, I remember, too, of keeping me comfortable as they could and calm.
3: It was really intense. And I just remember looking at you because it hurt a lot to, like, see you being like, oh, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't do it. And knowing the alternative was me not even being there, you not being there, no one being allowed with her in the room, like, just being shipped off alone essentially in an
2: ambulance yeah to go
3: with a bunch of strangers that weren't there for the first 12 hours or whatever the process like it just was very stressful but I uh had to relax and then
1: I think somebody asked me at that point if I want like if I wanted to go to the hospital and I was like I want the epidural
2: yeah and
1: then I remember you telling me you're like it's gonna take an hour probably to even get you through the paperwork part of it and then another hour to even get the epidural. So you might as well just stay here and work through it. And I was like, dang. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then she relaxed. Yeah. She went from six centimeters swollen to nine, not swollen at all but within with 30 lick. minutes. And then that's when you yeah. you guys took her out of the tub and, and you started pushing. Uh, but just that whole transition of like six to six and swollen to nine and not was crazy for me because that just was like a huge
0: yeah it, 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 it's it's great that that we supported uh, the, you because i i i knew that you could do it i just felt it i felt that you you had the right what's called the right stuff and I, but you know it was you were, you were getting beaten up by it and I, once we got you past that because breech labor should progress steadily and yours had stalled out for a while and your cervix had gotten swollen but the, that's often not a sign of, of the labor is being dysfunctional as, as, as much as you not being able to relax. Yeah. And so I'm not exactly, I don't, I'm not exactly remembering how we did it, but, but somehow we all got together and Alyssa, my student and Lindsay, you know, I probably went out of the room and hid in the on the couch in the other room, yeah. which, is what I, <laughs> which is what I normally do. Cause I just try to take my male energy out of there. But then when we decided that you got to nine and you had a lip, I think then we got you on the bed. And we began having you push because that baby had come down pretty far. And we yeah. had you start pushing and then we were able to reduce that lip just like we would if the head had been down. Mm-hmm. And then how long did you remember how long you pushed for?
1: 45 minutes.
0: So she remembers that.
1: <laughs> that was the exciting part.
0: <laughs> and so, I mean, you were probably out of it a little bit, but Gabe, you were watching during yeah. this time. And so what do you remember about seeing about Penny and, and the first parts that came out and, uh, you know, what, what's your strongest memories of the birth part?
3: I've never, I don't understand guys who like suggest other men don't watch like your child come into the world. I, I Like, I don't get that. How guys are like, oh, don't look, don't look. It, it blew, it blew my mind. But any, I, I didn't know what I was looking for. <laughs> I was sort of like what, you know, sort of blown away by the whole thing. And I remember I was sort of, her head was here and I was sort of watching and uh wiping the sweat off her head and stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh Penelope's little butt sheet came out first, like it was sort of there. <laughs> and I and I <laughs> just for some reason I was like, Oh, we're so close. Like she's she's right there. And I didn't realize like how big how much is left <laughs> like the baby was.
2: Yeah.
3: I thought like, oh, that's you know, maybe it's like this big of a, butt, it's like <laughs> it was huge. And I remember you sort of laughing at me <laughs> and, being, uh, it, and being like, Oh, you think,
0: <laughs> Yeah. You know, at that point, uh, laughter is really good because at that point I know it's going to be successful. Yeah. Right? I know that that baby's coming out. And also it is people wonder, they think the, they think the butt is small and the head is big, but actually the di- if you put a tape measure around the butt and the legs, it's bigger than the head
3: well and she was frank breech so she was coming out like with the extra right
0: so if you took the legs up like that and you took a tape measure well you people can't see it if they're just listening but yeah tape measure around the two legs and the butt that that, that circumference is bigger than the head circumference and so you saw you saw a butt sheet come out and then it goes back in a little bit and it comes out yeah
3: and then the, she started the meconium or whatever yeah it came out which was nice we didn't have to deal with any diapers yeah. for for a while yeah but that was funny um I was just sort of like oh for, you know first thing she does in the world is like shit yeah. herself <laughs> I was like great uh perfect and then um yeah I don't know it, it just the process flew by and she was pushing and you could see the like determination on her to get the baby out and I remember seeing the baby come out and her head was stuck in there and she was just sort of like hanging there like (laughs) and it, it was just the weirdest like sight I've ever seen in my life and uh you were talking about the color I remember you saying something about the color and then like helping her out by like grabbing her jaw or something yeah that you did yeah Uh and then you just put her on her chest. She came out, you put her on her chest, on Alex's chest. And then uh
0: Did you come around right away, Alex? Or were you just so wiped out? Or did you like know that the baby was on your chest at that point?
1: I did. I didn't want to look yet, though. I was sort of like, oh my gosh, I have a baby. (laughs) Like she's here, she's not in my belly anymore. And that was probably only a few seconds, but then yeah,
0: it's only a few seconds. It's really normal. They women often will take a brief little pause and they're they're sort of out of their body and then they come back into their body sort of as the same time the baby comes into her body. And yeah. then all of a sudden the, the thing that I enjoy so much about birth is watching a mo- woman work so hard and get, climb over so many walls and mm-hmm. get through so many barriers and have such a hard time and say things like fuck and shit. And I can't do this anymore. And the next moment they're holding a baby in their arms and they're cooing and they're smiling and they're laughing and they're like, it's yeah. it's, it's a change in personality that, I've been, I've been uh, a luckiest person in the world to witness thousands of times, but, but especially in the home birth world, we get to really appreciate that because we don't interrupt that time. So once baby was on your chest, and we're sure that the baby was doing its thing, then sort of I back off and then Robin sort of does her thing and uh, you, you know, and then baby was fine and now she's Penelope.
3: Nine pounds, what was it? Nine pounds, and you didn't two tear ounces.
1: nine pounds, two ounces. I didn't tear because you had you were keeping pressure, whatever you want to call the warm
0: compress, it. yeah, warm yeah.
1: compress. And yeah, so um,
0: you, how tall are you, Alex? I'm five six. Oh, you're five six. Okay, yeah, that's the reason I thought you were shorter, but no. still. So, you <laughs> somehow you got a nine pound, two ounce breech baby out of your bottom without a tear. Um, uh, when when. Again, other people would tell you that's impossible.
1: Yeah, no. No tearing. I think I had a small tear inside where on my cervix, but it didn't bother me. I think the worst part of the afterbirth were the hemorrhoids, honestly, but I didn't notice it. I was so in love with Penelope. I, I didn't care. <laughs> Penelope had a little
3: thing going on.
1: Oh, yeah. Penelope's perineum tour from. Oh, the, I remember from, that. Yeah. But it healed up, and within the
0: week, the first week. Yeah, she, that's a, that was unusual. We talked about that. That was pretty unusual. She had a little tear down in her bottom. Yeah, right. but
1: it didn't bother her. Like she wasn't a cry, crying baby all the time. She was totally, what I would say, normal and super calm. And
0: so that's a great story. So you, you know, you overcame a lot of obstacles. Um, you your recovery was probably I, again i don't want to put words in your mouth but i assume that your recovery was probably a lot better than if you would have had a cesarean section um and been in the hospital for days yeah. penelope got you know immediate skin to skin you know, she was never out of your arms or your arms uh, gabe so
1: she was on one of
3: us at all times i think that, that was one of the nicest parts to be honest uh, just being able to drive home, like
1: mm-hmm.
3: have, have her looked over. And it felt sort of surreal then be like, okay, you know, bye. Like, <laughs> and it, because when you have the help, it's like, oh, the, the baby. And then, you know, you're looking, you're always deferring to someone's authority in the room just for, you know, guidance or whatever. But getting in the car to drive home was just like a weird, this is our kid now. Uh, I, I enjoyed how personal the whole experience was uh how we knew all of you there weren't people running in and out of the room that I had no clue you know who they were and I used to hike a lot and it used to irritate me when they had like gondolas up to cool view spots because people who didn't put in the work to get up there got to see the view and it was one of those things where I got up to this one peak and I was like, how did these people get up here? You know, the, the, Don't tell me that they just did this hike when they didn't pass me on the way up. And then I get to the other side and there's a whole gondola and it really irritated me because it cheapens the view. And for me, like all that energy that doesn't know what it took to be in that moment spoils the energy. For me, like having people in the room, seeing what my wife just went through and the baby and being able to touch the baby and being able to talk Like, I don't want the first, you know, words my daughter now hears to be from someone that I've never met, that I don't know, that I've had no influence on them being in the room. And they're like telling, you know, picking up Penelope and doing stuff with Penelope. And I'm like, what the, you know, give my daughter to my wife who deserves this view.
0: (laughs) Uh, So that's interesting to me to hear that we always talk about, like, we like home births because you don't ever have to get in your car and go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Here you had to get in your car like three, four five hours after after you gave birth. But it was sort of like a, an interesting moment for you. As you said, it was sort of like, well, now she's ours. Right. You know, I didn't you
1: want to put
2: her, car, in, the you put her
0: in, the in the car seat. You drove her home. I didn't put her in the car seat. <laughs> oh, you didn't. Oh, my God. The, ho- go the hospital far. would go nuts. The hospital would go nuts on you
2: yeah well, we were not i drove so.
0: really slow We might have to edit this we might have to edit this part out of it or the child protective services are going to come after you yeah exactly yeah. we didn't
3: even we didn't even give her a pcr test right when we had her she could have given us all covid
0: oh my god well well thank you for telling your story about that and so now your story continues because as you've already let the cat out of the bag you're pregnant again yes so are you uh is it Gonna be in your mind uh, a whole different ballgame this time, pretty much, you think? Because you've done it before. Will you trust your body now?
1: Yeah, I trust I trust my body and I trust the process. And if this baby happens to be breached, then cool. I mean <laughs> it I would do Penelope's birth over again today in a second if I had to. It was so worth it. Even all of the discomfort and all of the back labor and even the ECV, it was all worth it.
0: So are you going to do, are you going to stay home this time?
1: Yeah. I think we're going to plan on doing it here. Good. birth center this time.
0: And you don't have a VBAC issue to deal with, which is great. Yeah,
1: that is great.
0: Great. <laughs> so if you could say just a couple of pieces of wisdom to other moms out there, whether they're breach or not breach about, uh, again, everybody has to make a personal decision of where they feel safest. But ultimately, uh, your choice to have the babies out of the hospital or the baby out of the hospital was mostly because of your not, desire not to be in a hospital, but not because of COVID. That just that just tipped the scales. But just because you know all the things that they do in the hospital. And now you know probably from firsthand that most of those things are not necessary.
1: I think aside of, aside from the medical side of it, Personally, with the team that I had, everybody feels like family now, like you and Lindsay, even Alyssa, who I, I haven't seen again since the birth, but I thought she was really great. And you just build such a tight and close relationship in your heart with these people that were there during that time for you. And somehow I feel like in the hospital, depending on the doctor who's delivering your baby, I, I just. Somehow I feel that that's not always the case, but with home births, I think it's more common than not.
0: Yeah, that's great. And we'll just leave it, we'll leave it right there. Uh, Gabe, you wanna say any last words?
3: There's just a like inherent understanding of what a hospital is and you go there when you're sick and when something's wrong. And to just immediately to look to a hospital is to acknowledge that there's something wrong that's happening. Like subconsciously, you're now just registering the whole process as uh, a firmity or a sickness or something. Nothing's wrong yet. Nothing is happening yet. And just to go there before, it's like you might as well live there because you might get sick. It's, you know, stay home. Uh, I would advise just to have confidence in what, like you put it great on your podcast the other day when you said, uh, Your mind, the only thing your conscious mind can do is get in the way of your primal function. You don't think about breathing. You don't think about all the stuff that's going on in there anyway. Like, oh, am I digesting right now? Hold on, I forgot to digest. You just eat the food, and it's all happening in there, and it does what it does. So trust your body, and unless you're, like, really not taking care of yourself and uh, you're not confident, I think that's the biggest thing is like, if you don't feel safe and you don't feel confident, you want to go to a place where you think people will take care of you because you're acknowledging that something's wrong. It's like, I think the hospital is a bigger reflection of like personal problems than like actual problems. You know, it's like, I don't feel safe in my home. I don't trust my husband to do what he's supposed to do. I don't trust this person around me. Let me, let's go to the place where I can just unplug and let things be done for me. It's like, okay, cool. If that's what you want, but, that's not what you want. That's what they're going to put on.
1: I do think a home birth is a lot more work than like for the woman than a hospital birth, because with the hospital birth, you can get the epidural. You don't have to feel it. You don't have to do what well, your body would be doing naturally.
3: They're right there too. Like had they she do said, everything
1: for you, but they don't let you eat and they don't let you have water and they don't like, I right. think you're sort of, letting yourself down a little bit. If you're a healthy mother with a healthy baby and there's no medical reason for you to be in a hospital, I think that you're letting yourself down.
0: I would, I would say that, that both of you guys, I mean, it's very well said. I would say that the, the process of growing a baby and, and uh, delivering a baby is nature's design and it's very intelligent design. And anytime we do something different, even whether it's going to a hospital to answering a questionnaire or going to pee in a cup or getting an epidural put in your back or whatever is is as Bliss likes to say, is an intervention. And there are ripples downstream from everything that we do and nature designed something. And for us to have the hubris to believe that every woman needs to have nature's design altered or assisted mm-hmm. is crazy. It's just crazy. Yes, there's a time for hospitals and some people will feel that hospitals are safer for them what i'm advocating what I, what I think you guys are advocating is that people get information and make a choice that isn't skewed or isn't um coerced upon them so that they can make a decision where they feel best some people are going to feel better in a hospital that's absolutely fine but it's not fine if that's all they've been told and they told the alternatives are crazy or dangerous or anything else because we could say the same thing about the hospital if we wanted to we're not but we're not going to try to use those same tactics on, in, in our world. We don't do that. We don't bad mouth the hospital to the extent of saying that you're crazy to go to a hospital. Yeah. Yeah. We say the hospital has a role, but the hospital oversteps its bounds way too often and interferes with the process. And we can't believe that every woman with a breech baby should have a C-section or that 30 per, 30% or more of women can't deliver their baby as nature designed and that babies need to go to a warmer or babies need to be sterile or have a bath or get a shot or do something, that they have to have vitamin K right away. If I mean, if vitamin K was so important, why did nature design babies to be vitamin K deficient? I mean, there's all these things that we think about in our world that that get lost in the medical model. I didn't think like this at all when I started. Uh, It's all been an evolutionary process. And what I'd like for my podcast and for bringing you guys on is for people to hear an alternative point so that they can then incorporate that into their decision-making process. We don't want to funnel anyone down a path. We want to make them informed because you can't make an informed decision if you don't have any information.
3: Yeah, there was a a Sioux Indian, Charles Eastman, who said uh, Western civilization is really funny because they move into an area... And tear down the trees to build a church when our church is the forest. It's like right. God already took care of it. He built the church. Now just worship. And it's one of those things where we we find a way to mess things up because our nature is like imperfect. And if you're telling me that you can't stick to a diet as a human being, which no one can, you know, indefinitely, you always fuck up somehow. Now you're telling me like the more hands get involved, the better and safer the process is gonna be. It's like, no, you have a bunch of fallible people. That are all coming together uh, to do a thing that's natural. It's like you, you're just going to mess it up the more people get involved. <laughs> In my opinion, I don't know.
0: Uh, that that well, that's what we're here for. We're here for your opinions, and I really appreciate you guys both staying up this late. I know what it's like when when you're pregnant and you have a t- uh, toddler,
2: yeah. <laughs> and
0: hopefully we become friends, as people might know, and and or maybe they don't, but uh, sort of become horse buddies. You know, I have horses, and you guys are my. Uh, Horse buddies. We we have roles. <laughs> well, I mean, have word for it. <laughs> well, and and, and Penny's going to grow up so uh, so used to these large animals, that it's going to be so cool for her. It's so fun to watch her. She just the horses nibble at her. They lick her. They, they she doesn't doesn't even bother her.
3: A little dirt never hurt.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed their story. They're lovely people. I think I mentioned in the in the interview that when I'm not around, they come up and take care of my horses. So that's uh, another perk of the um, midwifery model of care where you get to know your clients. I, I'm happy to see that Penelope will will grow up uh, never having any fear of horses. So that's a cool thing. And then on another breach note, I want to put a, a shout out uh, just today. I heard that a couple in on uh, the Big Island, not the Big Island, on Oahu, um, had a, a successful seven-hour primate vaginal breach birth with midwives, Jamie and Daniela. And this was a woman who um, contacted me for a zoom consult. And we had a good consult. I think afterwards, she said some really nice things about feeling safe and comfortable again, and it gave her the confidence to do it. And she texted me that her water broke. And I found out later that day that she had a baby. So congratulations to Shelly and Jake, keep spreading the word. And the last thing I'd like to say is uh, just, a, just a, a feel-good story. Some of you may have seen this story, and we'll end with this today. But this is a Belton, Missouri family welcomed their new baby girl into the world more than a week early at home with some surprising help. When any baby is born, it's a miracle, but this birth could take the cake. Nine-year-old Kayla Gunn helped deliver her baby sister at home, and her mother, a nurse at a local hospital in St. Luke's South, coached her through it. Her father, Caleb says, we may have a doctor on our hands. And I personally crossed off the word doctor (laughs) and changed it to midwife because the doctor probably probably would have called 911. And I don't know what they would have done. They wouldn't have probably known what to do when a baby comes out at home. A kid delivered a baby sister, Aubrey Rose, at seven pounds, nine ounces. And then it goes through the whole story. And it's really sweet. The paramedics did come, but the baby was already out. All in all, it's, uh, you know, the the family had battled fertility issues. And after a heartbreak of multiple miscarriages, baby Aubrey's incredible entrance was extra special for having her big sister bring her into the world. So it's nice to know that these things happen and that, that birth really just happens. Liz likes to say it, it just happens. And we only, all we do is sort of get in the way for most births. This reiterates my one point when a baby is born at home or on the highway, we make it into a human interest story. If a person plans a home birth, they're a bad family. So, uh, With that uh, stupid thought uh, on a day of a lot of weird things going on and me being sleep deprived, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, on behalf of Bliss, I'm just going to say bye-bye.